1: Hey guys welcome back to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today we have a q a with dr mike Isratel. we dig into things like why you don't want to limit your exercise variations needlessly a little bit about biomechanics and that sort of thing and we also dig into some of the psychology behind kind of being obsessive about macro counting and hitting training sessions but maybe missing social events and how maybe you want to balance that within your life as a reminder, guys, if you want your questions asked to Dr. Mike, be sure to be following me over on Instagram because that's where I collect questions, at Revive Stronger, and you can follow the rest of the team there as well. I highly recommend it. And without further ado, let's get into the show today. Cheers. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Dr. Mike back on the show for a Q&A. How's it going, Mike? Did you just finish good, your training? Good. Yes. How, where are you? What phase are you in right now? Still massing, moving up?
0: Last two weeks of massing. I weighed like 252 two days ago. So just trying to stay above 250 for these two weeks and eat well and train hard. My desire to train is like almost zero at this point. I'm quite overreached. But uh, then I get two weeks of active rest, a nice long eight-week, um, you could call it mini cut, but really it's a regular cut. And, um Kind of floating back back down to a light body weight and then i'm going to mass up the rest of the winter and then in the spring i begin dieting for uh show in july
1: amazing that's exciting i know people want to see you bring something even like every especially the last two seasons like you really leveled up and then you can yeah. like you even beat that one so i know this next one is going to be even better so yeah, be i am sure people's we're going to be excited to see that and uh yeah so let's get into some questions actually one of the questions i had is a selfish one because I recently posted up, it was like the super arm laterals. And uh, I had some arguments, which I think made a lot of sense in many ways, but I also know from performing both exercises that they feel inherently different when you do them. And like the pump, the disruption, those sort of elements that we take notice of for stimulus feel very different. And it was essentially, when you come kind of above up this sort of position, there's no tension like on the delts at that point. And at the bottom, like there's no tension when I do it, like it, it doesn't feel like there's zero tension when I go to start, and especially if I don't like rest at the bottom and I come and I, like there's almost some tension being generated through that motion somehow. I can't explain it, and they were arguing, "Oh, you should just do it with cables, and they, there's no point ever using dumbbells for lateral raises." Or at least that's the feeling. It- it it kind of came across in that way. And I wonder if, I don't know if there's a way to explain. I was just like, I was like, do both in the gym. They do not feel the same. You can't kind of get the exact replica of cables that the dumbbells are providing, especially through that like overloaded eccentric as you kind of really control it down.
0: Yes. So I had a video uh, that we posted on the RP YouTube channel a a little while ago. And it was basically uh, a video of a hypothesis that I have that um, machines because they have a certain degree of friction actually interfere with hypertrophy a little bit based on what they could hypothetically do because the way friction works in a machine is it adds to the resistance on the concentric but it reduces the resistance on the eccentric because in the eccentric the friction works on your behalf the constructor the concentric work works against you so what ends up happening and there's a few other reasons for this but what ends up happening is For for any number of reps or sets, whatever load that you can take to failure or close, you get a fractionally smaller eccentric stimulus and a fractionally larger concentric stimulus, which is probably just about backwards to how you would want ideal training to go. Ideal training, uh, we have good theoretical reason to believe is uh, there is a decent chance that it is even concentric and eccentric loading. There is another equally good chance, I would say, at this point that uh, slight, con- slight eccentric bias is even better, uh, with a little bit of a debiasing away from concentric. But I don't think anybody really has a decent hypothesis based on our understanding that's worth any merit that says that. Well, a concentrically biased movement is a really good idea, and eccentric. If you can unload the eccentric, that's great. I mean, g whisk got sort of wrong from all sorts of perspectives. So what ends up happening is by that. Uh, heuristic assuming that's true which is an assumption it's a hypothesis maybe free weights have a category of superiority all other things being equal than cables and other machines of course some of this is observable directly this is i think what can be attributed to the phenomenon of people saying free weights just have some they just fuck me up in a way that just nothing else does It body Free squats with a barbell, just man, they toast your quads like per set, per set, per set. Even machines seem to not be able to do. Barbell bench presses, uh, dumbbell press. I mean, they just blow up your shit. If they're a really good machine, do the same thing to you. So by a small margin, I think machines are inferior because of that problem. Now, by a small margin in other ways, machines can be superior. Yes, cables offer tension at the bottom of the range of motion and also at the top. They offer relatively of even tension throughout. So that's good. Uh, They can offer you more tension where you need it best. I think based on those two things, canceling each other out roughly, we're back to both of them are fine exercises to use in a periodized manner. Another problem, I swear to God, most people just unaware of. And I will say that this is a problem that I'm not upset at people having when they're just in the fitness industry as consumers because they're not supposed to know this. But people who call themselves producers in the fitness industry should know better than this. Sometimes they don't. The quest for the optimal exercise is always and everywhere a terrible idea for one really simple reason. You can't just do the same exercise over and over for a long time. It gets stale for a variety of different reasons. So you have to have what I call a top SFR candidacy list. exercises to give you the top stimulus to fatigue ratio. There should be a few of them. I would say that if you're training delts two or three times a week, each one of those should, or each other one should at least have different exercise involved. So that means in any mesocycle, you should use at least two delt exercises. I would be surprised if someone used just one. Can you imagine one delt exercise that you do in different rep ranges throughout the week? That that's a, a recipe for real stainless, not even stainless that you can sustain for a mesocycle. After three weeks, you'd be like, "I'm done doing this. This is stupid, and my elbow hurts." So. Being that you need at least two, two delt exercises at a time in a meso, being that there are generally three cycles in a progression block, and some of these exercises lose their, you know, they start to get other exercises start to be better on SFR than them within a meso or two, that means realistically, you need maybe five or six side delt exercises that are real good hitters. And that's not even talking about some exercises become prohibitive due to na- nagging injuries. You may be, I've been in a place where like, I couldn't do a variety of dumbbell moves because my elbows hurt for unrelated reasons. Or one of my shoulders is clicking funny on cables and I can't do cables. Like I had a thing where I couldn't do regular cable laterals facing the machine for like months. and I had to do other stuff. And if I had said, okay, there's this one optimal cable exercise from diagrammatical biomechanics analysis. uh, And I'm only gonna do this exercise and I'm not even gonna consider other exercises because they're so bad. Hypothetically or theoretically, that what ends up happening is if I get staleness on that exercise, I don't know what to do because I didn't have any other exercises that I thought were any good. And we can actually circle around this completely and do an SFR, just proxy measure of how much you know tension in the target muscle, how much burn, how much disruption, how much soreness, how much pump versus how much joint and connective tissue fatigue, and we can reasonably. Figure that there will be a fraction of the population that likes regular laterals are great SFR, super rom laterals are great SFR, cable laterals are great SFR, and if one of those is not great SFR, then you don't ever have to do it. But the thing is that you have a lot of these Instagram pages with biomechanist people that you know almost never educated biomechanists, which is okay. You can you know stuff without a formal degree, but they just make a lot of mistakes, such as this one, such as not hypothesizing that. The search for the optimal exercise is already stupid. We should be doing a searching for like five exercises that are really good um, and making sure that they're considerably varied from one another so that they don't present a staleness problem. So if I told you all the best exercises: squat, front squat, close stance squat, and low bar squat, as soon as you're out of squatting for whatever back reason, I'm like, I ain't got nothing for you. That's ridiculous, right? So we've been pounding away in the evidence-based side of the fitness industry for years, trying to get people to understand that there is no perfect exercise. They're usually a combination of exercises because you have to fill the volume somehow. Due to staleness, you probably won't fill the volume of 10 sets per session with the same exercise. So what you'll probably end up having to do is choose multiple exercises anyway. You might as well choose ones that are complementary but high SFR, like some of the delt exercises really hit you at the bottom of the delt, some are on super full range of motion and everything in between. And thus, you don't even have to choose the optimal exercise. You can have some exercises that, you know, hit some parts of the muscle more than others. So that's really good to have around. But you're also not always trying to hit that part of the muscle the most. For example, like people talk about the lower lats as this big thing. Yeah, lower lats can give you a cool pop. But if you don't have a lot of upper outer lats, it's going to be like your physique begins to look like a V taper and then never does. So what about upper lat exercises? Well, right now, people aren't talking about them because they're doing this cast bullshit. So it's maybe a fine exercise. Although, on biomechanical grounds, it doesn't even stretch your lat. So, already not the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But there are people like Kaz who I think on his best days throw out this exercise and say it's a great exercise. You should try it for lower lats. That's probably true. There are other people who say, here's all these other exercises, they're suboptimal. And I think it's a fucking clown show. <laughs> um, and I think that there's people just I haven't thought it all the way through. And that's okay. Maybe they thought it as through as they could and they're putting up. Content on their instas and stuff that says, Hey, hey, uh, you know, this is my best assessment of the situation. I'm just here to respond charitably and say, I hear that best assessment, but I think the best assessment is incomplete. And I think that variation with high SFR exercises means that there are lots of winner exercises at the top of the leaderboard and not one optimal thing. I think it's almost the same fallacy as um, gurus on YouTube in the nutrition space talking about bad foods and good foods and the optimal, the most, the biggest superfood, like. What the fuck are you talking about, man? Lots of foods are great in complementary ways because you will always eat many different types of foods. You will need to think about whether what are the best foods, not the best food, because that's a that's a false category. Um, it's almost like you know I've been watching a lot of the boys recently. It's almost like investing all of your resources if you're Vaught into the Homelander, and then he just gets killed. And you're like, we literally (laughs) don't have any other superheroes. (laughs) Sure. Well, yeah, it looks like he can lose his powers so then he can summarily die right after. Uh, But like, you know, let's say somehow we develop some kind of nuclear laser that kills him instantly. Okay, that's your whole defense system is based on that one guy. You're fucking done. The same idea happens when you have an injury that prohibits you from doing the cable lateral raise with one arm standing off the side of the machine. It just hurts my shoulder. I don't even fucking know why. So now what? So now all the other exercises were bad. I just have one exercise. Also, what does that what does that program look like? That just has the optimal exercise. You don't train your delts. I know that on an Instagram video, you train your delts once, and you don't even really train them hard. You just go through the motion for the video, and you go, "Ha check that out." It's like the Doug Bernoulli, twenty exercises. Well, the fuck, you ain't never gonna do twenty exercises your whole life. That's nonsense. Like, tell me you don't train without telling me. You don't train. Uh, and by, by training, I mean follow the training process, hard sequence training over and over, dealing with the real world of injuries and the real world of stainless. You're going to have multiple selections. So, is the cable lateral raise thing good? Yes. Is it categorically superior? No, at least because of the friction thing and many other reasons. Um, and the super arm laterals, a great tool. If you don't think so, no problem. Never do it. But if you try it, you'll almost certainly be one of those people that goes, Holy shit. This is an incredible delt. It burns my delts off the bone. It doesn't hurt my joints at all. I love that I have to use less weight. It's awesome. And if you don't think it's awesome, please try to improve it. And if your attempt to improve it just turns it into another old exercise that we already have, like we'll just don't go above here. By the way, the tension loss above here is just mystical nonsense. How the hell do you think your arm keeps moving that way? If we chemically silence your side delts, you'd be a lot harder because they do absolutely contribute and also, PO, you know, a lot of those people are like, well, it hits my traps. You don't have big traps, motherfucker. You got nothing to worry about. You're not Tom Hardy. So, well, you can, yeah, it's like people who are saying, you know, you imagine girls saying, well, these squats just hit my glutes more. Yeah. And that means you can throw away some of the other dumbass exercises you use for glutes. Like, I, if I ever see a guy doing regular lateral raises and then barbell shrugs, I and mean, they're like, bro, you know, there's one exercise you could do that hits both of those just the same. Nah. So, in any case, I think a lot of this is just... uh mythical quest for the optimal optimum and not understanding that optimum really is a matter of top tier choices and not a matter of categories of this is the best then everything else follows afterward
1: i think it's uh, it's frustrating at least from my perspective because it is i think it is leading people down to that like people always argued against that like PubMed warrior and that textbook warrior it's just leading people down this rabbit hole of kind of just looking at functional anatomy and biomechanics in that sense and they're forgetting yes. what actually happens in the gym that's why like my initial response was like have you tried cables versus doing it this way because if you have yeah. you know it doesn't feel the same <laughs> like they nah. they're just just practical experience tells you that uh, and then yeah it's infuriating then to yeah have people limit their choices uh, and like you said i think sure. that is a sign of how many people have you trained for how long because you'll see so many different individual differences to how things feel like the the thing that's perfect in the textbook is it necessarily gonna apply perfectly, like you said, for you, like you're getting pain with that exercise. It's like, oh, now what can we oh, do? <laughs>
0: well, I don't I've never read that. I've I've co-authored a bunch of textbooks. I've never read one that says that exercise is
1: perfect.
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know what I mean? But even they yeah. say, you know, we, we cut these people too much slack. We call them PubMed warriors, nothing good at PubMed. We call them biomechanists, except none of them is a degree biomechanist. We call them textbook people because they're smarter than the average Joe. They're not writing textbooks and none of the shit is in a textbook and actually in a textbook it says to do exercise variation for a couple of very good reasons so they're like nerds not at the top of the hierarchy of nerds which means they can catch a lot of people beneath them and make them make it seem like they're smart and they have it all figured out together but they've missed a couple of bigger pieces of the puzzle and ideally they should be consuming the content from people above them in the hierarchy uh, you know like going on uh like eric trexler and greg knuckles bullshit, and going on eric helms bullshit and brad schoenfeld and alan aragon all those other guys who have just thought through these problems a lot with a lot more completeness of thought and then going back and checking the logic and be like oh you know like maybe i can caricature this as this maybe these other exercises may be good but they have some downsides here consider some downsides of these traditional exercises and also here's an exercise like cable lateral bullshit or whatever that has all these great upsides. And I know it has downsides too, and maybe it's not the optimal, but maybe it's a great choice that you can try. And then after a while, a bunch of people try it and a bunch of people keep it. And a worst case, it's just a shitty exercise that nobody ever uses after it gets us two months of popularity. Good case, probable case is that it gets to be one of those top 10 exercises in the world for training your delts. And that's always in the rotation at gyms around the world, you see it. And if people don't know what you say, hey, I've got this say, have you ever tried this? And, wow, that actually feels really good. Ideally, it is one of the exercises that just universally considered like top two, like squats and leg presses for quads, like it just has like a mythical status because it's that good. But it has to earn its status of being that good, based on the stimulus proxies, and the fatigue proxies, like people are just getting unreal pumps and all this other crazy shit from it. And it's basically not hurting anyone's joints, relatively speaking, amazing. But then you don't have to convince anyone to use it. After a while, it's just become pretty fucking obvious. Like anyone I've ever shown super rom laterals too. one person out of 10. will be like, fuck that. I hate weird, weird are my joints. I hate it. Don't do it. That's cool. No worries. And the nine other people are like, this is unbelievable. I can't wait to add this exercise to my repertoire. And it's like, sweet. Yeah, there you go. So I think maybe a little bit less of these are bad exercises. This is the one good exercise and a little bit more of, Hey, I have an idea about, Hey, this is a, another potentially really good exercise. Uh, I figured out.
1: So. Yeah. Very well said, Mike. I appreciate that. Um, and then my other selfish question was: I saw you recently got a lying—I don't know if it's called a lying hack or a lying leg press—in your gym. Like that's the—I think the latest piece of equipment you got. Is that right?
0: Yeah, the Atlantis leg thing, How selectorized do you, leg machine. Have you used that before? A lot. Uh-huh. I've, yeah, I've used a non-Atlantis version. It's almost okay. the identical machine made by somebody else.
1: They feel very different. To, like it obviously looks like a hack squat, but it's lying down versus obviously way more upright. But the, do you just find, for when I, where well, there's one in my gym and I can use way more weight on it. I'm not entirely sure why, like I can virtually max it out and do stupid reps on it. I probably need to add some more to it. It's not me. It's just a, I don't know where, however, however it's set up. Yeah. Everyone's super strong in that machine but the it just feels so much different. I imagine that's because you're lying flat versus, be, I'm guessing, the more upright you are, the less load you can use, more gravity, whereas lying flat, just that's the resistance of, feels way different.
0: That's definitely one of them. Another thing is that the cable movement and the friction and the selectorized stack makes the feel of the machine different in general, concentric, eccentric, isometric. So at the end of the day, it changes a lot of variables, and that's one of those things that, can potentially inject a lot of great variation into a program. You know, you use regular hack squats, regular leg presses, squats for a while, those can all get stale. And then you can do uh, you know, that machine and it feels different and it's psychologically it's great and physiologically it checks some different boxes and advances other parts of your muscles that maybe some machine you were, you were using to, uh, didn't and then you just trade it in and trade it out whenever you feel ready. I actually have a pendulum squat from Arsenal at my gym and I don't love the machine, It actually preferentially stimulates the top part of the movement versus the bottom, which I think is suboptimal for hypertrophy. But for months I was using it as my second leg day machine for quads because I had great quad movements. They got my quads are really sore and fucked up. And the first day, and then the second day I had this machine, it actually, because it emphasized the top so much, it helped me control my eccentrics like crazy on the way down, because then that machine will just slam you straight down. You have to start from the very top that you unlock your knees, you have to start slowing it down like nuts. That crazy centric stimulus was so novel and so different. And also the load at the bottom was so light that it was really easy on my knees and my shins. I don't know if you've ever been in this position before, but if you do a lot of loading at the bottom, very heavy on legs, sometimes your shins can start chronically aching. Is it there's actually bone deformation there and you have to like nice. back <laughs> off and heal it up a little bit? Yeah. So that machine was excellent for me, even though it was not remotely in my top five go to quad machines. Just for variation alone, it was a huge winner. And the people who are against variation in training, nine times out of 10, they just don't actually train consistently. Because if you train consistently, you instantly realize, oh shit, I got to fucking, I'm stale on all these movements. I got to try something else. And then if you have another movement, it, it seems great. Now there's such a thing as too much variation. Then you're varying on very poor SFR movements. But I would say you know five to eight exercises per muscle group to have in your bag of tricks as top SFR movements, some of them pretty different from one another. Because for example, let's say your, your machines all hit your adductors pretty hard, except for one or two machines. And over a while, you've your adductors have just taken so much beating and so much pain. They're under recovering. You could push your quads harder, but your adductors are preventing it. It's great to have those other machines around so that you can lay off your adductors for a while, let them heal, really deeply recover while you pound the shit out of your quads. It's a great thing. So that variation really can help. So what I'd say about that last machine, it's a fine machine. If I had to choose between that machine and a regular hack squat or that machine and a regular leg press, I throw that machine away immediately. But I don't because I have a few pieces of equipment at the gym and thus it's a great choice, one of the many great choices in a properly varied program. And I think it can stay for that reason. So almost the similar ideas with the lateral raises versus cable stuff.
2: Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. I
1: think that's a really great explanation of why variation is so helpful. And the fallacy of, again, just seeking optimal, like just the optimal movements or machines or what have you is like that's just a fallacy in its own right. Because you're it like you said, it's like the the good and bad foods. You're not looking for the good or bad foods. You're looking for the overall kind of good diet, as it were. And it's yes. the same with the entire program. And so you yes. can make it up of lots of variations. So that's cool. Um, the yes. only other question I had on that, uh, I found failure on that, or like naught to one RAR just hell like it was just like i just it was like my concentric speed just it didn't feel like it really changed and my quads just but like is such a different stimulus to the kind of incline hack that's awesome
0: yeah for me that machine is like um is i know when i start doing it it's just a lot of burning quad pain for me it doesn't crush my spine it doesn't feel like i'm gonna get hurt which is cool but then the other downside quote unquote like you pay somehow right like it's easy to zap your quads with minimal pain and a hack squat but you, if the thing feels heavy as fuck and it's crushing you this thing you got to really work to zap your quads and then they hurt for a long time during the set and after the set but your joints feel super great because yeah. it's actually not that much uh crushing on your joints so it's kind of you know pluses and minuses uh you know quad pain is man it's such a terrible yeah. breathe. one of our friends she was just here for some videos She's like, it's like somebody's pouring hot water on your legs the entire time and you control the spigot and someone says three reps, that just means you need to pour more hot water on your legs. You have to be the person to turn it. It's tough. <laughs> you know, some yeah. muscles, like some muscles just burn worse than others. Biceps, quads, they burn like crazy. Pecs, I don't know. They burn a little bit and then you're done with a set and then they feel fine. You're like, yeah, back, lasts never burn that much. So you get, it's, it's, and the muscles that are easier to hit kind of just means you can, put a lot of pain into them very quickly yeah so there's something to
1: that your description of the difference between the two is exactly how i would describe it it's like pick your poison because both (laughs) eventually suck in some sort of way uh so the next question we have is uh, or rather one that isn't my question was does the position you put your legs on the leg press make a difference or is it all about just reaching full range of motion Well, full
0: range of motion in what joint you know if you put your legs up really high, you can have a lot of range of motion demonstrated in the hip joint. And not as much in the knee joint that's pretty good if you want to train your glutes not so great if you want to train your quads. If you put your feet lower on the leg press, then you can get a lot of movement in your knee joint and potentially just about the same or even less in the hip joint and that's maybe a bit more quad centric so what I would say is if the leg press almost always the way i program it is for quads so i'd say is get your legs as low on the platform as two things can allow one your heels still touch the platform at the bottom of the lift and you can still generate force and two your knees feel okay that doesn't have to be great because your knees get used to stuff but your knees don't feel like they're just going to blow up um so that's probably my ideal uh position uh, vertically uh on the leg press, is as low as possible for your heels to press and your knees to be fine. That biases the quads the most. Are there other ways of leg pressing? Sure. Are they good in some context? Sure. As far as narrow or wide, I mean, it, it, it really doesn't usually hit your adductors much more if you go wide. Sometimes it does if you're stretching them a lot, but many people can go relatively narrow or wide, and it's just like an interesting variation that probably just mildly engages different groups or parts of a muscle and no huge difference. So I'd say, for those purposes, you know, you can go wider and narrow if you want, but the vertical component is, if someone said to me, i like to put my legs even higher than what you're saying, I would go back to their SFR for quads and see which which one gives you the best SFR. Because if the low one doesn't like really, really produce a lot of force, you don't feel as stable, Yes, your knees don't hurt, but they don't feel great. And all of a sudden you can't get as good of a tension development in your quads, as good of a burn, as good of a pump, et cetera, then yeah, you should put your feet higher. But I would say that start at that low position and then work out from there. And you often come back to that very lowest position is probably the best way uh, to do it. There are not a ton of sort of guaranteed or very nearly guaranteed technique check boxes that you can check and say, this is almost certainly a good idea here but there are some, and we should use as many of them as possible. And like going back to the earlier me ragging on the quote-unquote biomechanists, is that sometimes they have very good things to say about it. And this technique is really actually mechanically probably close to optimal because of X, Y, Z. It just so happens that they miss a couple of those X, Y, and a couple of the ones they insert are not logical. So that's the problem. So I think that their logic can be exercised delineations that say, well, you know, if you do it this way, it'd probably just be worse versus if you do it, you know, some other way, like if you're trying to hit your side delts, but you're raising the dumbbells up like this thumb up, that's going to be a lot of front delt. There's not really a way to argue that. (laughs) So there are, you know, if you're doing leg press for the quads low and in a comfortable position for your quads, as far as wide or narrow is probably the best answer in most cases. And you sort of start and work from there. And any deviation from that low position out of leg press should be based on compelling reasons of something like mass of ours just way better and then i had great that sounds good
1: yeah i think that i really appreciate from you because that's always been my kind of way of diagnosing things is like start with the, the principles of movement for the exercise that makes like logical sense but then don't ignore that individual's response and that seems to be the bit that i see lost by some of the People kind of talking about biomechanics is they ignore the individual response. Whereas, like, just like, no, you have to put your feet like this and do it like this because that's what, like, how it has to be done. But, right, like you said, the person might feel a bit better, like narrower, wider, or slightly changing that position, and that's a great feedback tool. So, yeah, I like that. Next question. Uh, completely different kind of topic any research to support dieting being easier during the spring spring slash summer they're saying they have a much easier time dieting during that time versus winter
0: i haven't looked at that research directly uh it might exist hypothetically it makes a lot of sense because when uh in warmer temperatures your appetite typically doesn't upregulate as much in colder temperatures you get um well, there's an effect in water called the cold water effect, which after you get out of cold water, your hunger ramps up a lot more than if you get out of warm water. But I think that effect probably is the case. Just any kind of cold exposure makes you hungrier. Um, you know, winter has been a time of conservation of as much body mass as possible, typically, and uh, for a lot of humans ancestrally, uh, especially folks, uh, Asians and Caucasians that have evolved with the real winter. Because if you're Afghan ancestry, gee, you know, winter means something a little different uh, biologically to you. But uh, a lot of times Africans are even worse at handling the cold. (laughs) When it gets cold, they're like, fuck, this (laughs) sucks on every possible level. And everyone else is like, yes, we agree. This blows the cold sucks. So uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, there are other sociological reasons. Um, You know, like you're covered up in the winter and it's easy to be a little fluffier and it's okay. Uh, In the summer, you're supposed to be frolicking around. and uh, Etc. To me, the thing is a little backwards, though, because cutting during summer is easier in the sense that, if, like, you don't get as hungry; it's really hot. But also, like, you miss out on all the summer fun because you're dieting through it. Dieting during winter sucks because it's cold and it's annoying, and you don't even get to show off your gains. But at the same time, you have that like, there's nothing fun going on. I'm just going to hunker down and do this, which makes much easier so i actually think it's probably best if you're gonna if the season thing matters to you a lot that i would say dieting to get really lean through most of spring is a good idea so that as the spring gets warmer and warmer and turns into summer your diet is hitting its hardest parts yet and that it's actually kind of saving you as it goes i will say i've dieted a few times into the summer And it feels amazing because every day the trees blossom more, the birds are happier, the sun is out more and it's warmer and your diet kind of gets not as hard as it could have been towards the end. You also start your diet basically right after winter ends, which is like you're fluffier and you're so overeating all the food that you just don't give a shit. And it's easy to diet during that time. There's also nothing going on. And then my preferred method is to sort of slow gain during the summer not getting too fat, do a short mini cut in the middle of the summer for like two weeks, cut all the fat you gained in the first month and a half, and then finish the last month and a half of summer, again, in a slow mass gain. Because a very slow mass gain keeps you nice and lean, uh, but also allows you to eat food and have fun and lift hard. You don't want to maintain your whole summer. That's kind of insane. But you could, it's totally fine. But most people who are interested in long-term improvements, you're going to maintain for 12 weeks. That's for no reason at all. And then once, you know, your summer is over, then what you can do is sort of take a, maybe a little active rest or something like that, and then begin another uh bulk for winter, mini cut at some point during winter, bulk through the rest of the winter, maintain active rest, and then start another cut for the spring. That's kind of like the get fucked during summer bro periodization plan. I'll eventually have an RP video about that. But I think that's... uh A sensible way to do things if you are very seasonally constrained most people that i deal with competitive bodybuilders they couldn't care what the hell was happening like the show must go on and especially if you have bodybuilding show it changes everything because you're like like every time they do the arnold all those people miss thanksgiving dinner every year it's too too close for sure christmas dinner out, out the window that sucks and regular people probably shouldn't do that also at rp we're really just not big fans of dieting through the holidays like the way we see it is, you know, the winter holidays. The sure. way we see it is, you you have like fifty weeks of the year to diet hard. Other than those two weeks, surely you can move your schedule around to not have to diet through those winter holidays. Yeah. So, in any case, like I think, like that's a what I just described. That whole circ uh, annual plan is like a decent idea about at least sort of what could be a good trade off between getting lean for the summer, but also recognize that winter is a shitty time to cut. So I think it kind of checks all those boxes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I didn't actually, um, I, uh, it's just a funny anecdote about being kind of that cold exposure leading to more hunger. Whenever I was, I don't, I just remember this as a child going swimming and then always being like ravenous after swimming. And I didn't know why. Like, I remember like it was the same thing with my sisters. They're always hungry and just ate a load of shit after swimming but i didn't know there was yes. actually like a physiological reason i thought it was just yes. like my yep. like little kid self being like oh yeah i've exercised now i'm hungry or something <laughs>
0: yes yes it's the cold water effect um think about it this way if you like uh, went pick uh, like it was like say it was 32 degrees outside and you did like three hours of pickup basketball like many kids in the uk and the u.s do when you come home you're not exactly hungry you're sweaty you want a shower and a bunch of cold beverages And after you have those, you're going to sit around a little while, relax, and then you're like, yeah, I could eat. But uh, swimming, cold water effect is real, which is one of the reasons why as a method of fat loss cardio, swimming has to be given a grain of salt. Because if it's swimming in a conventional pool that is a little colder, yes, the cold water effect is real, and it means that most people will want to at least eat back the calories. Whereas if you do the elliptical or incline walking or blah, blah, blah the rebound hunger effect is not as large typically. And that means that you can prescribe it to people with more of a realistic hope of them actually being like, oh, well, like I did the cardio, but
1: I'm not super hungry. And then they stay on the plan. I'm wondering if you can use that like during massing phases to actually help <laughs> with hunger. Like, can I have a cold sure. bath and see if that helps me like get sure. through dinner? there you go. That'll <laughs> be a fun idea. <laughs> uh, someone asked, when are we going to see the training session with Nick Walker? Was that, is that something you've got scheduled? No. No. (laughs) It sounded like it was from the way they asked. It sounded like it was. Uh, Yeah, that'd that'd be cool. Uh,
0: It'd be cool. I think Nick Walker has so much muscle that making him become debilitated and throw up during training should be very easy or at least very straightforward. Um, And he typically trains with pretty good technique, but we will have ways of making sure his range of motion becomes rather extreme uh as far as to what he's used to and that would be really fun um but you know uh it's uh, it's interesting uh people will ask or say things uh that are totally well meant but the real world doesn't work like that so like a lot of people will comment after i make some post or video especially on instagram that say things like you need to go on joe rogan and like I think it's meant as in, it would be great to see you on Joe Rogan's podcast. And, and, and to that, I agree. But some people use even more particular words like, why aren't you trying to get on Joe Rogan? Like, I've literally had that before. Well, is not something one tries to do. <laughs> uh, if you know anything about it, which we do because we've had multiple colleagues get on there, uh, Lane, Ethan Sapley, Joe Rogan contacts you, not the other way around. It has to be like that because the entire world wants to get on the podcast, you would simply hit him up somewhere and be like, hey, yo, bro, check it out. So it is funny that people will say stuff like that. And sometimes they would be like, get Nick Walker on your channel. Well, you see, Nick Walker lives in the United States. It's a free country, and he's not compelled to do anything. So we'd have to offer him a good offer or convince him. We have to reach out to him or his people, wait in some sort of queue for him vetting who the hell is worth his time or not his own very lucrative YouTube channel. his his own people he trades with. He lives in a totally different part of the country. And at some point, it's like, oh, yeah, we maybe could pull some strings to hopefully try to get him on. But at the end of the day, most of the people we get on the RP channel, there's people really want to be on there. (laughs) And if you really want to be on there, we'd love to have you on. And if you're really ultra famous, maybe we'll talk to you. And if with minimum effort, we could get you to come on, great. But uh, so far on the channel, we haven't done this thing of like really beg elite pros to get on because we can make high quality content that's educational and fun without the top pros altogether. And if they wanna come on, that'd be amazing and a super big treat, but it's not something that we spend too much time trying to do uh, because I think the alternative is just to get regular high talented bodybuilders on and to us that's at least at this juncture on the channel, that's good enough.
1: Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Yeah, I, I much prefer that anyway. When, I don't know, it just always comes inauthentic when people try and, like, I don't know, beg a certain individual to do a podcast with them or come on i don't know who does this but if, if you were to do that just be like oh why like do they really want to be doing that with you like what? how much did you have to pay that person or something? how much convincing <laughs> do you have to do and then why yeah 100%. Did, am i wrong did you recently launch something where people if they want to come and have a session with you and maybe be on your youtube channel was that a recent thing you launched i think i saw that recently
0: yeah yeah so uh T. pull folks and i were trying to figure out if we can potentially do Something in Vegas, um, especially and maybe potentially in Michigan, where people come through uh, and we have like a couple of training groups with people where like, you know, it's myself and the team for ROM guys and, you know, like a three to one ratio of us and other people that we're training, and they sort of get two hours of training hard as fuck and whatever training you pick with all of us around physically pushing you and giving you tech advice. And then after that, two hours of just like eating snacks post-workout and open Q&A. And um, I don't want to give away too many hints, but there's absolutely going to be something like this in the future uh, with Revive in London. But we're trying to get good at that process and maybe do some experimenting in the USA before we bring it over across the seas. We've done this a trillion times in other capacities. We're not worried about the concept, but we are trying to get an accurate estimate of how much do people want to do this sort of thing? how much are they willing to pay to do it versus how much is like a crazy amount you would never charge anybody and so we're, we are absolutely getting into that sort of thing and yes there's a 99 percent chance that that session will be recorded for youtube so you can make the highlight reel of throwing up blood into your own eyes on the leg press you know whatever people do during workouts
1: i didn't i don't know why i didn't quite put two and two together that it was going to be a similar setup to what we've done with our London seminars, it makes complete sense. And I mean, I'm sure they're going to do really well. So if people are interested, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are like, oh, that sounds pretty good. Like there's a reason they always sell out when you guys come over here and we do them. Sure. So they're, they're fantastic. So I know people are going to really enjoy that. So that's really cool. Well, thank you so uh, much,
0: Steve. Yeah. And if you guys are interested, just go to Instagram, uh, Team Full Rom, just go right on the Instagram page, follow it, and then click through the links and it'll be on the links. So you can send us your email And you'll be the first person emailed with any kind of announcement, so you can jump on it early.
1: Fantastic. And like you said, the people keep their eyes open for the ones happening in London, in in the UK at some point next year, because we're definitely going to be looking to throw some of those. But the next question is, uh, should I be worried about obsessive behavior? They said, never skipping meals or workouts, but skipping social events.
0: I super like that this person is worried about obsessive behavior, which is two psychopathies fighting one another. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. And a lot of them come from the same root of uh, of personality traits. So, uh, if someone's prone to obsessive behavior, there's a greater than 50% chance they're also prone to worrying about it. Uh, you know, so I would say it's actually a real simple solution to all this. The psychology is quite deep. And not much nuance, but I'd say the easiest thing to ask yourself is for the long term value that you feel like you're getting out of your investment in sport is skipping social events uh, but logging all of your meals worth it to you. So the the way I have uh, easy analogy is what you're doing with your body when you're training is you're building the ultimate, you know, or machine Android, for example, right? You're a professor in a lab and you're gluing his chest plate on and making sure the nuclear reactor is all tuned. Something you do with a screwdriver, of course, that's how you fix all Androids. Um, and you know, uh, people are like, hey, you know, Steve, you're gonna come to this New Year's party, but the Android's going through like engine testing and like he's putting out crazy petajoules, and you're like, oh, this is too good. Uh, yeah, listen, there's many New Year's ahead. I'll join up with you next time you crank on that Android for a while because you're building something amazing. You're building something beautiful. You're building an accomplishment. You're building something that takes years to construct. And, and first of all, the construction is super, super awesome as an experience, a deep experience of investment and, and construction that you made yourself. And also the end product is ostensibly very good that you're super proud of. Uh, maybe a more benign analogy would be like, um, you know, if you're familiar with supercars, the Koenigsegg brand of supercars from Sweden, as each one costs like a million and a half to buy just all the cars sell out before they ever go out because as soon as they announce they're going to build a new car the list fills up with rich ass motherfuckers from kuwait they're, i want one i want the fifth one ever made because i just was around around for the first four and so you tell you know how many uh in is this actually the name of the designer how many friendship gatherings and parties did he meet literally twinkie, twinkie you know um Tinkering with, with his you know unbelievably successful million dollar a year, you know multi million dollar a year business, life's work of supercars. Yeah, fuckload. Was it worth it to him? Of course it was fucking worth it. You can ask him. He'd be like, "Was it?" He would might not even understand the question. Like, all that time you spent in the garage tinkering with cars, do you wish you were like going up and down roller coasters in Sweden's best park? He'd be like, <laughs> "What? This is paradise to me." So the only question I have. For, for the person asking us to come back is all of that foregone uh, opportunity. Are you doing it in an affirmative way or in a negative way? When someone's like, Hey, like, you want to go out with us? Or are you really just going to like do your back bullshit? If you're like, I'm going to do my macros bullshit. and I love it. Like I would skip all the, all the, I hardly went out at all when I was a grad student. So I was busy doing research and busy do writing my thesis and doctoral stuff. And I was busy in the gym, cranking away and eating my meals. I just didn't have a lot of it but if people are like do you feel like you're missing something this kind of kidding me i'm creating the most beautiful things i've ever built i never thought i was missing something it never felt bad to me it wasn't a trade-off that was very difficult to do and then in that regard it's super fucking healthy and awesome it's amazing right but on the other hand if you are coming from a top-down perspective this isn't you the originator going i'm building a the world's greatest machine if it's like well i have to do these things and i have to stay home and i don't want to but I have to, you just think down that line of, you know, is, are you building something that's at least worthwhile? That'll really be awesome. And if you're like, I don't know, well, then you go out with your friends, Jesus Christ. Uh, Cause you know, it could just be a shitty hobby. Like if someone put me in a fucking basement it was like, make art, like here's these fucking pastel paints. I'd be like, this is awful. I'd rather go get high on weed with my friends dumb as shit they're like but you could be a great artist but like fuck that i don't like that shit art dumb get out of my face totally valid and also anything in between is valid so like if there's an yeah. event you want to go to with your friends it's once every two weeks and you make it once every other once a month great because every two weeks would be too much for you and you really just want to get some more sleep and get a good leg workout but every now and again it's worth it so these things aren't things to fret over they're things for you there's total commitment to the plan and zero friends you disown your parents and then there's a zero plan you're just a social butterfly hugh hefner there's whatever answer in between these which could change for you on a weekly or monthly basis whichever level of dedication the costs are lower than the benefits that's what you pick and it just requires some soul searching and some namaste shit you could even make a mistake you could say i've searched my soul and I know that if I go out with my friends tonight, I'll be happier in the long run than if I don't. You go out with your friends and an hour in, you're like, God damn it, I hate it here. These people are fucking drunk and annoying. I don't even want to drink because it's stupid. It feels like fucking poison. I'm going to go home and write out my next cycle and go to sleep early. And then I'm going to wake up and crush this fucking arms workout. Well, there's your answer. So next time someone's like, do you want to go out? You'll remember that in the back of your head. Be like, nah, last time didn't go so well. Fuck that. You skip another three or four times. And then you get really thirsty for going out. And then you go out once every five or six. So your equilibrium point at that time in your life is every five or six opportunities to hang out. You go hang out. That's how I do my life. Like my wife and I are going on vacation here in a few days. And up to the north of Michigan, which is very pretty. It's not exactly the best bodybuilding environment, but we all rarely go on vacation. So for me, every now and again, it's totally great. But after two or three days, I'll be like, let's get the fuck out of here. I need my science shit back home and my private gym and all this other stuff. So it's all about a trade-off. There's no reason to worry about any of us. None of that requires worry at all. So take your worry, throw it away. Take your uh, attention to detail. It's, it's like super, super serious and asking, how am I interested am I in doing this? versus how interested am I in going out. And you can do that every time. Every time people ask you to go out, you can just envision, be like, okay, hold on. Last time I went out, how to go, how interested am I in it, blah, blah, blah. And if you have better things to do with your time than go out, which includes sitting at home and counting macros or whatever the alternative is, then absolutely do it. And as soon as you feel like, oh man, I'm really missing out. Hey, next time somebody asks you, go out. See if you're really missing out. Because if you go out, it blows dick. Well, then that just adds up to, as again, in grad school, I in undergrad, I tried to go out a little bit more thinking I'm the going out type, but I just wasn't. I was like, fuck that. So I just pulled out of the whole thing for a long time. It was a long time of great personal development. And then eventually I established more of an equilibrium. I go out a little bit more than normal. I still work a ton. And then for me, that was great for a while. And then I realized that it's always a floating equilibrium that you can always meet at any point. Just be honest with yourself and do anything stupid in which if you're going out and you know it's the wrong place to be, get out. And if you are at home and you know you'd rather be out, call for friends and be like, where are you at? And Just go because you, you know, you're in charge of your own life and do things that are on the net positive, invest in your current and in your future, seeing all of that together at the same time, you can make a decent comparison, you can even be wrong every now and again, but you won't be wrong for long, because you like what you like. And as you age, I've typically found that you like what you like a lot more, and you like everything else a lot less. So it becomes more and more clear how you want to spend your time.
1: I couldn't have said it. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. I couldn't have said it. Uh, That was fantastic i think a lot of people uh, especially like the younger people i end up interacting with have that kind of they don't want to get like they they feel like almost two extremes like they see these hyper-focused bodybuilders they're like i should be like that if i want good results but then they see like i don't know some of their friends in their corner or their family that are just like quote-unquote normal and they're like i want to be normal but i want to be like this and then they're like pushing and throwing so it's like you said kind of find actually have to think about it what is it brings you happiness and joy? And it's okay. I, I've even found myself sometimes like, oh, I should be more social. I'm like, yeah, but actually I just really feel <laughs> like being on my own and doing uh, this. Right, like whatever 100%. it is. So, uh, and like you said, it can fluctuate and you can learn um, in terms of like what you enjoy and what brings you joy because yeah, there might be times where you're like, oh, actually, this is actually really good. So it's good to experiment yeah. now and then. Awesome. awesome. So the next question is, why do we not seem to see you, Mike, grinding out reps very often?
0: Two reasons. One, I tend to fail pretty quickly, so my close to failure looks a lot similar than my uh, going all the way to failure. One of those reasons is I almost always intentionally cap my movement speed. So the the way that people try to estimate failure is the de- decline in concentric velocity. But most of my shit, I'm trying to stay so safe and controlled that I, I cap my concentric velocity at maybe about half of what I could do from rep one, and thus. Typically, there would be four reps of slowing down until you hit failure. But for me, since I'm already most of the way slowed down, maybe the last rep or two would be slowed down. So people see me slowing down a tiny bit and then I stop and they're like, what the hell was that? You just started at four IR. Well, for me, that's two IR. Two IR is the average of what I train to. Um, I've also been playing around lately with times of grinding it to failure or very close and other times of... Not ever really going beyond 2RIR, and I can't say I'm overly convinced that failure is such a good idea. Um, I go very close to failure oftentimes on like biceps and stuff like that, which muscles I know can handle a shitload of fatigue and they need all the stimulus they can get. But quads and shit like that, if I'm two reps in reserve, I just get weeks and weeks and weeks of consistent, amazing, steady growth and progression. If I grind real close to failure, I get so much fatigue and so much local tissue disruption. That the next session doesn't even go that well, and I have to do a deload or half a week, and I'm like, "What the fuck?" At some point, failure training, ultra close failure training for me is really more about showing off. And I think most people that like to train to failure understand that intuitively. It's a psychological thing. It's like you against the your willpower and the machine thing, and it's fun. Very few people ask the question of, "Is it a good idea in general?" And I would say every now and again, failure training is critical because it tells you how realistic your RIRs are. But if I go close one RIR, zero RIR once a month, I go to actual failure on some exercises once every two months, but I post an average of two training videos per muscle group per week. It's very easy to get the accurate representation that I rarely go to failure because I do. Yeah, that's it. And if I feel... That I'm not going close to failure enough, I go closer to failure. For example, on uh, some squats last week for the new Atlantis machine, I did a set of 15 reps First set, racked it. I was like, you know, man, I was lying to myself. That wasn't, typically I go 15, 13, 11, 9, because I, I lose a lot between sets. But I was like, man, I was sandbagging. So instead of doing 13, I did 14 reps set after. Instead of doing 12 after that, I did 13, and then 11, and then 10. And by the last sets, I was like, <clears throat> "My quads are fucked." But it was because I was like, "No, no, 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 I'm sandbagging, and I'm going to grind a little harder." And I think people forget that you can always go a little harder on the sets afterwards. You still don't have to go at all out all-out failure. You can still get an unbelievably good workout. So that's that's the situation.
1: Yeah, I had someone uh, I recently posted up a it was a set of hacks or whatever, and I basically posted it was like three, two, one rr and then, like naught rr and I then racked or whatever and like it was absolutely not RAR. and someone posted like why didn't you just go for the last rep and just like if you missed it you missed it and i was just like because <laughs> like the the risk versus reward and the fatigue of like trying i'd have to have really tried there's no point me just going and like giving up i'd right. have to really try and then not right. to get it like even the not like you just said the one to not RAR reps like on something like a hacks was just Destroys you, so it would not just wreck the entire session, basically. If well, I tried also, it, so first
0: of all, you're asking a great question of what is the benefit, and there seems to be no benefit. What about the downside, Steve? What are you going to do? Have you ever been pinned in a in a half squat? I I actually would not know what to do. I try to shimmy a little bit and then poop my way out. <laughs> yeah. Like if one leg comes out and the other doesn't, and the machine still has traction to go down, you just career-ending injury. I fuck me getting stuck in any kind of goddamn machine <laughs> yeah. because I have some ego problems. Like. Fuck that. You know, somewhere I go really close to failure a lot is walking lunges. And like you go to failure in walking lunges with no weight, you just fall and nothing bad happens. But it's so goddamn brutal and painful. I don't see a lot of people doing that cuz at the end of the day I think they want to go to failure against some like mythical load and really eh, just really grind it in. And and that's all good and well, but uh oh you have to ask yourself what part of your training is mindless psychology of being masculine versus a scientifically good idea to do to get jacked and if you want to be masculine or whatever go do mma i'm just kidding you could do bodybuilding and do that just be intelligent about making the right kind of trade-offs
1: yeah and i always think like we even know this from the research more well-trained individuals are particularly good at like rating that of reps and reserve and then also the closer you get to failure the better you are at it so like someone knows if they're like naught to one and the benefits of like oh you could have done one more whatever like the yes. benefits versus risk reward like you yes. said it just outweighs every time so
0: yeah. yeah well the way we do progressions you and i even if you don't get close to failure as much as you wanted on one week you just put five pounds on the bar or add one rep and next week you have to match the reps or even go one more beyond and then then you're really close to failure and you just keep doing that unless you're sandbagging and pretending you can't hit prs it's not going to work. So yeah. if you're very close to failure and you're very driven to hit good high technique PRs, eventually you will get close to failure anyway.
1: Yeah. I think that's what people miss as well. It's like, well, if you're progressing like three to, like you start three RAR, three, four RAR, like every mesocycle, that should be improving. And like by the end of the mesocycle, yes. you should be improving versus the last week, yes. and the al- the one before. Yes. So whatever you're doing, you know, you're in proximity to failure because you're improving. You wouldn't be otherwise. So 100%. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, treat time? For-
0: training as like a one time. I'm just Absolutely. training once and I want to have that
1: session. Time for one more question. One more. One more. So, they said, why is the recommended range five to 30 reps? What happened uh, for hypertrophy? What happens at rep four or rep 31?
0: Yeah. Um, cancer instantly at <laughs> rep four. And actually lightning hits here at rep 31. I know someone thought was some biological disease that's not true. So the shorter answer is very good so so basically anything north of 30 reps is still quite effective for hypertrophy, but it starts to fall off right so like we have this graph we can draw where it's hypertrophy effect one rep here goes up like this to five and then it roughly flat lines and at 30 it roughly starts to fall back down. but it's all a curve so four is great it just might not be as great as six um, and sometimes it's even better. But not as often as it's worse. Three is uh, gee, you know, I just wish I could do a few more reps. Two, oh man, you know, just a lot of bone and joint pain and not a lot of anything else. So there's not magic numbers. Five to thirty is like roughly, you know, what uh, what is a good idea to do? And uh, there are certainly boundary conditions. You know, anything any analogy here works. Like how big does a burrito have to be to satisfy a customer? Well, you know, if it's a really really small burrito. It's just going to satisfy fewer customers. But if you get a Japanese girl to come in, she might be the biggest burrito she's ever seen. Is are we still talking about burritos? <laughs> um, but like, you know, cause you know, she weighs 90 pounds. And for her, 50 calories of food is like a lot of food or something. <laughs> Whereas if you have like an, ew duck worker in it, some say some guy from the, the Midlands of the North, you know, those barely human English people, Steve, <laughs> you know, he could have a burrito that's 12 pounds in size and he could just eat it and it'd be great. But like if you sell a 12-pound burrito, most people would be like, that's insane. I don't want to buy that. So the range of burrito sizes in the industry consider like something most people would benefit from. Similar idea from the 5 to 30 reps. Uh, Are there times where you you can benefit from 4 and even 3 reps? Totally. But this just aren't something to depend on nearly as much as the 5 to 30. And 32 reps, sweet, awesome, amazingly hypertrophic, but a little less hypertrophic in the average time you would try Than maybe 28 reps or something like that. So just thinking of like that in terms of like rough amounts, which is funny, right? Because I get the same question in a different way. I'll do like like pull-ups, six, five, four, four reps and be like, oh, four reps, isn't that not hypertrophic, Dr. Mike? And I'm like, oh
1: my fucking Switches off.
0: (laughs) It's just off completely. Like on average, yes, but in this circumstance, it's working really great uh, for me because the pull-up eccentric is so long anyway that four reps on a pull-up is really the same time under tension as like, a set of 10 in the down, which is totally fine. fine
1: yeah fantastic mike thank you so much for this again uh i'll make sure everyone can kind of check out team for all rum hopefully they're already following you guys and following the the youtube channel and kind of seeing all the action over there and following you over on instagram but yeah thank you so much for this and we'll catch you very soon
0: awesome thanks so much take care
2: Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche it is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them, we kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets.